Hi there and welcome to another podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. The COVID-19 outbreak has seen unprecedented pressure imposed on the research community to produce and interpret data. In some cases, this has resulted in a departure from standard research and publication governance. Recently, attention has fallen on hydroxychloroquine, a drug made famous by US President Donald Trump, and the publication of a very large observational data set suggesting it may be harmful. This paper led to the halting of a number of randomised controlled trials internationally. Colin MacArthur is an intensivist and director of research at Auckland City Hospital in New Zealand and is the co-lead of the Australia-New Zealand arm of the REMAP-CAP study. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Todd. Colin, there's been a, a lot of discussion, obviously, in the popular press about the use of hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. What's the background to how this might be effective? Well, hydroxychloroquine is a um, well-established agent for treating malaria, and it's also used as an anti-inflammatory agent in, uh, in lupus. So it's got a long history um, and of a good uh, safety profile. Um, it has been looked at in the past uh, as a potential agent um, to treat coronavirus diseases. And the reason for that is it has some chemical characteristics uh, that affects the ability of the um, virus to get into the cell. Um, it acts this way because it changes the chemical nature of the uh, receiving um, uh, site on the cell, the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 cellular receptor. Um, and that's been shown for previous coronaviruses. And by genetic sequence homology, they've been able to show that that would be also predicted for the, this coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2. So it's got some pre-existing uh, work with other coronaviruses that support the idea. There's also the possibility that its immune modulation effects that are used as part of the lupus treatment might also um, have, have a role. Regarding this uh, coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 one, there have been some uh, laboratory tests that uh, demonstrate quite strong uh, inhibition at, at low concentrations uh, in the laboratory, and that's supported, supporting the previous information from, from um, earlier coronavirus work. So it looked like it had uh, some biological plausibility. And from then, it's gone on to a sequence of, um, of clinical uh, trials of um, varying nature, uh, which have um, caused um, quite a degree of controversy. Colin, what evidence is there that it works for COVID-19? Perhaps I could background that a little bit to say that hydroxychloroquine was being used quite a lot uh, in the early stages of the pandemic in, in some countries. Uh, and less so in others because of its un uncertain efficacy in the clinical setting. There were some early supportive studies that triggered this. Uh, there was a, a study from France and another randomised, that was uncontrolled, and a, and a small randomised trial in, uh, in the Chinese uh, population, uh, which were generally supportive, um, but not showing a profound uh, effect. But it was enough to encourage some people to um, see this as uh, potentially a, a magic bullet. And the FDA then proceeded to allow its use, whereas previously it was not a, uh, a recognised use for the, this agent. So it got uh, made available. And so a lot of people were given it if they came to hospital with the disease. And in fact, there were also people who were given it before they came to hospital as well, particularly in the, in the US. 
I can't really comment about that kind of use, but the hospitalised use was moderately extensive. And that allowed um, what are called observational studies to be uh, undertaken. And there were two that are particularly um, relevant. One uh, that was reported um, from uh, veterans' hospitals in the, in the US, and that looked retrospectively at patients that had been given hydroxychloroquine or had not uh, for treatment of their COVID-19 uh, disease in hospital. And they uh, were not able to show any evidence that it um, reduced the incidence of uh, needing mechanical ventilation. And there was a possibility that it may be associated with increased mortality. But of course, these observational studies are inevitably confounded by the patients and the groups that got it and that didn't get the therapy um, being different. And um, you could well imagine that patients that were sicker were more likely to be given a, a, a what was considered a more experimental therapy. And it's very hard to fully adjust for those kind of risk factors. And so this is um, data that is interesting, but it's not definitive uh, by, by any means. And that paper also called for um, randomised um, clinical trials, which were ongoing at, at the time. It's obviously a lot quicker to be able to do observational data when patients are being given it in the clinical setting uh, in, in moderate numbers. So this information comes out sooner uh, than the randomised control uh, trials do, unfortunately. Tell us a little bit about the Mera paper that's caused all the controversy. So with that background, um, we then got the Lancet paper, um, which was published in, uh, in late May, um, and it's got some really important characteristics, uh, which is that it has, it's a, comes uh, purportedly um, from a very large um, data set and uh, a total of 96,000 patients hospitalised with uh, COVID-19 uh, from um, hundreds of hospitals around, around the world. And they were able, uh, according to the data that was published, um, be able to identify uh, many aspects about the patient's characteristics uh, and about the treatment that, that they received in hospital, including the use of hydroxychloroquine and with or without an um, anti-inflammatory um, antibiotic, a, a macrolide. They also included patients receiving chloroquine, the, um, the earlier form of the, of, of the drug. So they has had the advantage of having very large numbers and uh, uh, a lot of data about uh, the patient characteristics and about the treatment that they got. So it's a very, uh, it appeared to be a, a very uh, comprehensive data set. And they had, um, because of the large numbers, had uh, some important uh, findings, which was that there was an independent association of the use of um, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine with increased in-hospital uh, mortality and also uh, an increased uh, risk of um, ventricular arrhythmias. So these are both very important, serious findings. And uh, there were quite a, a reaction, I think, in, from the, uh, the research community uh, to these findings. Colin, uh, as you mentioned, observational studies are obviously sometimes difficult to interpret, particularly with the potential for um, a bias for treatment towards those who are sicker. Were you surprised at the response to the Mera paper in terms of uh, halting ongoing randomised controlled trials into hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19? Oh, no, not at all surprised. Um, this was very much the, the right thing to do uh, with the information that was available. Um, 
because there was randomised um, trial data available, albeit not yet completed, the appropriate thing to do for anyone um, undertaking those trials would be to pause, uh, and that was the word that was used, um, a temporary halt, uh, while studies looked at the data that they already had to see if in a randomised uh, population whether the same kind of safety signal was present or not. And that was what every trial in the world did. They, they stopped and, and had a look at the data. And the, it was interesting to see that uh, play out over the following uh, week or two in the, the largest trial, the recovery trial in the UK, uh, which uh, a total of 10,000 patients were in it, but uh, I think around about 1,400 or 1,500 uh, had received hydroxychloroquine. Uh, they had a look at their data and very quickly um, responded to take away the temporary halt and to recommence uh, randomization to hydroxychloroquine within the space of a, a few days. And other trials have done the same. The Solidarity trial, which is uh, led by the World Health Organization, uh, our own trial, REMAP-CAP, um, and the ASCOT trial, uh, which is based in, in Australia. Colin, following the publication of the Mera paper, there have been some concerns raised about the validity of the results. Can you tell us what they might have been? Yes, absolutely. Um, they published, uh, along with the main paper, some details about the data that they had uh, based it upon. And um, because the results were a little bit surprising and the, the number of patients that have been treated uh, with hydroxychloroquine seemed very, very large. And so... Uh, a number of um, researchers around the world looked more closely at, at the data and they found major discrepancies between the number of cases, uh, the number of deaths and the number of hospitals involved and the countries involved that did not match with the data that had been made available by um, the national reporting organisations around the world. And in fact, some of these discrepancies were so large and so significant that the data could not have come from those uh, those hospitals and, and those countries. And an initial error was found from the Australian data, uh, which was impossible really based on the um, what they had, had presented. And they quickly responded to say that they'd made a, an error in assigning a hospital that was in Asia uh, to Australia. And that was the, the cause of the discrepancy. However, that was um, only a very small part of the problems with, with their data. There were um, many discrepancies in the countries around the world that did not align with the level of disease activity and the mortality rates uh, that had been being reported by their uh, national health authorities. So there were many of those discrepancies. There were also a number of statistical uh, anomalies uh, which made it uh, appear that the data that they had didn't represent a, a true patient uh, population. And so letters were written to the editor uh, of The Lancet um, asking the authors to uh, make the data available. Um, there was concern that the peer review process had not adequately validated the source data and that the only way to sort out these discrepancies was to make the data available for independent scrutiny. Colin, that paper has now been retracted. What sort of impact does that have on you and the rest of the research community looking at a drug like hydroxychloroquine? Well, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. 
um, the data now we won't be using as as part of our assessment about uh, whether we should proceed uh, with continuing trials with with hydroxychloroquine. Um, the reason for the, the the retraction is that the, the, that independent adjudication of the data was unable to be done because um, the company holding the data um, refused to to release it. So we, we will never know um, what actually the the truth was. So I, I think although there may be something of interest there, we're never going to be able to have it in a form that we can use. So we'll have to look at the situation with hydroxychloroquine um, independently um, of that uh, observational. Uh, data set. We'll have to pretend it never happened and uh, look at the data we do have. And the most reliable form of that data is in the randomised um, clinical trials. So most relevant to that um, is that very soon after those retractions were published, um, the following day, in fact, the largest study, as I mentioned, the recovery study um, based in, uh, in the UK, put out a press release which was last Friday, uh, stating that um, they had stopped recruitment now, having only restarted it the previous week, and had looked at uh, their data, and they were now making it available in an unusual form for a clinical trial, but um, the COVID world is an unusual uh, situation, I guess. And they put it out as a press release, um, giving their results for the um, patients that were... Uh, randomised to hydroxychloroquine. So this is now new data, which has not been um, published. It's not been peer-reviewed, but it is in the public domain um, by a press release. And it is now the bit of information that all researchers are grappling with to work out what to do. And it showed that uh, they had 1,542 patients randomised to hydroxychloroquine and 3,132 uh, randomised to uh, usual care alone without hydroxychloroquine or any other antiviral therapy. They found there was no significant um, difference statistically in the primary outcome of 28-day mortality uh, being 27, 25.7% for hydroxychloroquine and 23.5% for usual care. So a slight increase in mortality associated with the hydroxychloroquine. This did not reach statistical significance, but they came to the conclusion that it did meet uh, the definition of being able to exclude uh, reliably that there would be a benefit to hydroxychloroquine, and I think that that is um, correct for hospitalised patients, the population that, that they were studying. So a non-significant result, um, they, and they considered that this was uh, essentially a finding of futility, that continuing on uh, would never be able to demonstrate a benefit, and there was a possibility that it would in the end um, demonstrate harm. So they have now discontinued uh, that arm of, of their study. And the rest of the research world now has a press release um, on which to um, base their decision about further uh, hydroxychloroquine research. Colin, the the um, 
the pressure to release information in the present or in the circumstances of a pandemic are completely understandable, but has resulted in some unusual practices. There's been some criticism of some of the major journals and their peer review processes, the release of early information, unmatched or uncontrolled data, and now releasing um, data into the public sphere through press releases and those types of things. Does that is that sort of approach constructive in in uh, in the context of a pandemic, or should we be aiming for a more rigorous level of scrutiny of, of results before publication? Well, I think this is the main thing that the whole process ha- has highlighted that under the pressure of uh, needing new knowledge uh, relating to COVID nineteen. We have taken shortcuts. The scientific community has taken shortcuts, and it's emphasised the why we have these a standardised process in place so that we can have reliable information. And there's been this tension between getting information out uh, versus uh, having the most reliable in- information. And there have been, as you say, various different forms of dissemination and um, inadequate peer review. Uh, inadequate validation of primary data sources and it has made it very, very difficult for the scientific community uh, to take this forward. It does, however, mean that there is at least some information out as opposed to none, but I think many might argue that this is almost in the form of disinformation and it makes the the process worse. Uh, The people that are doing the the data that we can rely on, that are creating the data from randomisation of... uh, of patients to receive a therapy or not, and so that all the confounding factors can be balanced, um, will take longer. It will take time to do it properly. And it is only with that kind of data that that we should be basing our decisions. But unfortunately, the timelines are longer than than the public would want, or the longer than politicians would want. And so people are seizing upon the opportunity to put anything out there in the public domain. And it's very hard to communicate the inadequacies um, of different types of data analysis or data sources um, to the general public and, and to politicians. So I think it does make it very challenging. Colin MacArthur, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your time. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, visit our website at oslacommunity.com.